0: Would you open in your Bibles with me to the book of Acts chapter 15 this morning? Acts chapter 15, the text that we're going to take is somewhat lengthy this morning. So without much comment, I'd like to begin reading in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse number 1, and then we'll come back and make some comments on the text. I hope that you have your Bible with you and that you'll take the time to open up to Acts chapter 15 so that we can begin reading there in verse number one. And we'll read down through most of the chapter as our text this morning. The scripture says, and certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles. And they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, "'Men and brethren, ye you know how that a good while ago God made choice among us "'that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. "'And God, which knoweth the hearts, beareth them, bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, "'even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, "'purifying their hearts by faith.' Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. That the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication... "...and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren." And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greetings unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, Ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom... We gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas who shall also tell you the same things by mouth for it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us. "...to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which, if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well." So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read... They rejoiced for the consolation. And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. Paul also and Barnabas continued in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord With many others also. This morning, I'd like to speak to you for a few minutes about contending for the faith. You know, it's inevitable that when God is at work, the enemy will be trying to interfere. And of course, the enemy is a liar, he's a deceiver. And his primary means of interfering with the work of God is to introduce confusion and deception. It should be no surprise to us that when people are getting saved, the message of the gospel will be attacked. And that is the focus in this particular passage. We find that God has been doing a great work, particularly a great work among the Gentiles. And this has caused tremendous rejoicing. But of course, the enemy wants to create confusion, and he did so. And, of course, that confusion had to be dealt with. I want you to notice, first of all, in the first verse, that there was a confusion that came about regarding the gospel. Some men had come to Antioch, which was about 300 miles away from Jerusalem, and they claimed that they were sent with the authority of the church at Jerusalem And they came with a message for the Gentile believers there in Antioch and said to them, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Do you see what they did is they added something to the message of the gospel. It was something that they felt should be a priority. They believed it was something that ought to be true of every person who claimed to be a Christian That is, that they would associate themselves with the covenant that God had given to Israel, and they would enter into that covenant through the rite of circumcision if they were a man, and that they would then follow the laws of Moses. They wanted these Christians to leave Gentile behavior, and they wanted them to become Jewish or Hebrew in the way that they conducted themselves. And what is really really damaging about this in verse 1 is that they associated this with salvation. Specifically, they said, unless you do this, you cannot be saved. Now, you'll notice in verse 1, there was a serious error introduced concerning the gospel. Because, of course, most of these believers here in Antioch were Gentiles. They had not grown up with the laws of Moses. They had not been associated with the rituals and the laws that had been given to the Jewish people. And so what was being said was, it's nice that you've responded to the message about Jesus, but in order to be really saved, you need to come along and do these other things as well. You need to make sure that you follow the law. You need to become saved if you will, a Jewish proselyte in order to experience real salvation. Now, we don't know exactly what the intention or the design of these men was. We don't know their hearts, but clearly they had some confusion themselves about the gospel. And clearly what they were doing was introducing incredible confusion into the church that was there at Antioch. Later, when this was referred to in the message that was sent back to the church at Antioch by the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, it was said that these men coming and teaching this was subverting the souls of the believers that were in Antioch. It means that they were taking away their foundation of their faith. They were causing a great deal of instability in them. These these believers in Antioch were troubled. They were troubled by what was said because they thought, what if there is something that we are missing? What if there is something more to the gospel that we need to do? What if, in fact, we need to follow these laws and go along with these covenants? So there was confusion about the gospel. I want to point out to you that this morning... There is a great deal of confusion about the gospel in the world. That confusion is not just in the minds of the general population, but that confusion often exists in places that claim to be Christian churches, that claim to be places where the Bible is preached, and yet people are terribly confused about what the gospel is, One of the ways that you can find something out about the nature of a church is simply by asking people who are ordinary members of that church, what is the gospel? How did you get saved? How have you seen the power of God in your life? You will inevitably find out what that church believes and teaches and preaches about the gospel. And let me say this morning... That there are many important things, and we're not trying to say that there are certain aspects of doctrine which are not important, but when it comes to doctrine, the gospel is the most important, and if the gospel is not right, it is unlikely that that religious organization or that religious teacher is going to be right about anything else because the gospel has to do with every aspect of the Christian life. So these men were coming and they were introducing confusion. It's a terrible thing when people get confused about the gospel, especially if they are young believers or if they've recently come to faith in Christ and they get skewed in their perspective of what the good news is and how to have a relationship with God It can create tremendous instability in their life, and some have even become so discouraged that they have walked away completely because they were not able to come up with solid answers for their questions. So there was confusion. But then we find in the verses that follow, there was a confrontation. Because Paul and Barnabas saw how significant this was. They knew that it was imperative that the believers in Antioch would be strengthened in their faith and that they would be assured that what they had believed actually was the gospel. Paul and Barnabas went toe to toe with these teachers who were coming with this new doctrine. They had come into the church and Paul and Barnabas, and you may recall that they had just returned from their first missionary journey up into Asia Minor, where they'd been preaching the gospel and churches had been established and pastors had been left behind. So these teachers came into the church at Antioch and they were saying, you all need to get circumcised and you need to follow the laws of Moses in order to be really saved. And Paul and Barnabas, when they heard that teaching, they went directly to those teachers and they confronted them face to face. The Bible says that it was a strong confrontation. The words that are used in verse 2 are dissension and disputation. It means that they reasoned with them strongly, they were very passionate about what they were saying. Paul and Barnabas were not going to allow this simply to go by because they realized what was going on. They realized the, con- the confusion that was going to come in the hearts of these new believers. And I want to point out to you that there is a time and a place to have confrontation over the gospel. We need not be unkind. We need not be rude. But there is a place to speak strongly and firmly about the truth of the gospel particularly when there are souls in the balance that could be influenced. It is our place to confront and to point out what the truth is, because in fact, eternal souls are at stake. It is fitting for us to be clear in our communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul and Barnabas were determined that they were going to confront this. Now, this confrontation was so strong that eventually it was decided that Paul and Barnabas need to go back to Jerusalem and need to get to the bottom of this. Remember, these men had come claiming that they were sent by the church at Jerusalem. Now, I think that both Paul and Barnabas understood that this was in error, that this was inaccurate, but they felt and the church felt that it would be best For them to make the journey back to Jerusalem, and for them to bring this matter before the apostles and the the pastors there in the church at Jerusalem, and ask them, is this true? Did you send these men with this message? Uh, We need to talk about the nature of the gospel. And so they determined to go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and put this question to the apostles and come to some kind of a conclusion. You'll notice in our text, and I hope you saw as we were reading, that on their way they were passing through all of this this place between Antioch and Jerusalem, and they were coming across congregations of believers in places like Samaria, and everywhere that they went they would go into these congregations and they were telling the people, this is what's been happening, this is how these Gentiles have been getting saved, and This is what God has been doing, and you'll notice that the result of that is that there was tremendous joy at the end of verse 3. They caused great joy unto all the brethren. People are rejoicing. True Christians are rejoicing in what God has been doing through the preaching of the gospel. Now then, we come to verse number 4, and we see that it's a necessary thing to contemplate The gospel. There's a contemplation of the gospel. So they finally arrive at Jerusalem. And when they did, they're received of the church. The the apostles and the brethren, James will later come to our attention. He seems to have been the senior pastor of the church there at Jerusalem at that at this time. And this is James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Not James the apostle the brother of John, the apostle. So there's a difference. That James has already died. His life has already been taken. He's become a martyr. But this James is going to make some sort of a decision. So here they come, and the Bible tells us in verse 4 that they, that means Paul and Barnabas, declared all the things that God had done with them. So they were giving like a missions report. And they were giving a testimony about all the places they had been and how the gospel had been preached and how people had been saved and churches had been established and everybody was just excited about everything that was going on. They were rejoicing in the goodness of God. And then verse 5. In the middle of the mission report, there stood up some members of the church. They're described in verse 5 as being certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed. And we know that there were a good number of believers in the church at Jerusalem who came from this sort of a background. And they stood up and they began maybe to interrupt the missions report. Oh, oh, hold on. I I think we need to point something out here. Did these Gentiles become circumcised? Are they now following the laws of Moses? Moses? And of course, Paul and Barnabas answered in the negative, no, that is not something that was required of them. Well, we think that it would be fitting for them to follow these steps. If, in fact, they're going to be true believers, then they need to be circumcised and follow the laws of Moses. So the gauntlet was thrown down. And now there comes a need to really contemplate And think through the nature of the gospel. This is what's indicated in verse number 6. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. So let's have a meeting. Let's consider this from the scriptures. Let's make sure that we understand that we're not making a hasty decision. Let's make sure we're not missing something. Now, clearly, there was an undercurrent in the church at Jerusalem of those who felt it was necessary for the Gentiles to follow the laws of Moses in order to be real Christians. And I'll point out to you that they were bringing their cultural understanding into the discussion of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And whenever we do that, it is going to cause difficulties. It is going to cause confusion in people's minds. To to put it in a way that we would understand, it would be very foolish for us to go to the mission field where people are getting saved in other countries and demand that they become Americans in order to be Christians. To say to them, now you have to do things the way that we do them and you have to follow our cultural understanding of things. And you have to order your life in the way that we would order our life. That would be very foolish. And it would be adding something onto the gospel, which is not necessary for the gospel. So they came together to consider this matter. And I just want to point out to you that the gospel is important enough that we ought to consider it carefully and give deep thought to how we understand and communicate the most important message that we have. It, it is not a good idea for us to just willy-nilly go out there and say the things that come to our mind and say, well, as long as I'm saying the name of Jesus, it'll be okay. There is much confusion that is taught and preached today in the name of Jesus. So we must be very careful about how we are preaching and presenting the gospel. We must make sure that we are not causing confusion in people's minds. The gospel is important enough that we ought to invest some time and energy to make sure as the servants of Christ that we understand and that we are properly communicating the gospel. So they came together. And verse seven tells us that this was not a mild or tame meeting, because at the beginning of verse seven it says, "And when there had been much disputing, that means lots of people were standing up and sharing their opinion and perspective and saying, "Well, I think this, and I think that I, I want to point this out and I think someone should pay attention to my point of view. I have something to add to this discussion and lots of back and forth and maybe some tempers were getting flared a little bit and a little bit of heated conversation was taking place. You can can picture the scene. And right in the middle of it, a man named Peter stood up. A man who had earned the respect of the church. A man who had walked with Jesus who had endured already much suffering for the cause of Christ, and a man who had a significant testimony to share with the church at Jerusalem. And so he stood up and he shared a demonstration of the gospel. As he went back in his memory and he reminded the church at Jerusalem of what had happened in his own ministry when God had particularly chosen him and sent him to a man named Cornelius to preach the gospel. And Peter talked about how God had done that. He makes an interesting statement in verse number 7. He says, Ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's pointing out this was clearly a work of God. There's no denying that God was working in this situation, and Peter is speaking with authority to show that it was clearly God who had initiated that evangelism encounter in which some Gentiles trusted Christ. Then, he goes on to say, verse 8, "...God which knoweth the hearts, bear them witness." giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. He says, look, I told you about what happened and how when they believed the gospel, when they believed on Jesus, they received the Holy Spirit just like we did. And he points out, isn't it significant that God is the one who gave them the Holy Ghost and God knows their hearts? Now, Peter is driving at something here. He goes on in verse 9. And he says, God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. These were Gentiles. And yet God said, these are no different than you are. You're no better than they are. They're no worse than you are. They believe the same message that we did, and God purified their hearts by faith. God accepted them. Now, the implication of all of this is, without them becoming Jewish proselytes, without them being circumcised, without them following through somehow with the law of Moses. Then he asks a question in verse 10. Now, therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What does he mean by that? Well, the yoke that he's speaking about is the yoke of attempting to earn God's favor by reaching some sort of a status of good works or achievement. It's the idea that somehow if you do enough of the laws well enough that you could be good enough that God would finally accept you. And Peter said that was a yoke that was on us and on our father's why would you put that yoke on these Gentiles? Why would you expect them to rise to that place when we could not rise to that place? You know, this is a fundamental truth of the scriptures is that none of us are worthy of salvation. None of us are good enough to earn God's salvation that he offers. And Telling people, now you have to do these five things in order to be truly saved is nothing more than putting a yoke on them. But men, particularly religious men, are relentless at putting these kinds of yokes on people's necks. It's a way that they can control people, honestly that they can make people do things a certain way, and if you can attach salvation to it, if you can say, well, if you don't do this, then you can't really be saved, that carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? For instance, if you could convince people that in order for them to be truly saved, they have to come to church every week and give an offering, that could be very beneficial to the church that you're in charge of, couldn't it? You could really convince people that in order to be saved, they've got to do these things. And you know, there's an awful lot of people. This is Sunday morning. There's an awful lot of people out in society who are going to a church and giving an offering because in their mind, they think, I'm buying my salvation. I'm earning my salvation. Now, that's a terrible yoke. How much money do you have to give? How many times do you have to attend? This strikes against the very nature of grace. Which is the next thing that Peter goes to in verse 10 or verse 11. He says, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. The nature of the gospel is grace. The means of salvation has always been by the grace of God. God has never been confused about whether it's grace or works. It's only men who get confused about this and step away from grace and seek after works. When someone says, here's something that you have to do in order to be saved, then you know that they are confusing the gospel. Now, sometimes they're well-meaning. Sometimes they're just trying to help someone understand the kinds of things that would be, would be uh, expected in a person's life if they really got saved. And they're saying, you know, this and this and this. But then sometimes people think, oh, that's how you get saved. You do this and this and this. Instead of realizing that salvation really is by grace and it is only through Jesus Christ. Amen. It is only by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ that a person can be truly saved. Now, to us, sometimes grace seems too risky. I've actually had people say to me before, I don't know if I could go along with that. That's too easy. What What about the people who don't mean it? What about the ones who are insincere? Well, naturally, the Bible deals with that, of course. And sincerity of heart is extremely important when you're responding to the gospel. I think you all know what I believe and preach. But sometimes we're, we're too afraid to leave the door open in this area of grace because we say, well, someone might abuse the grace of God. And we're reminded in the book of Romans, shall I continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer? God forbid. God forbid. I, we shouldn't continue in sin that grace may abound. God forbid that such a thing would happen. God forbid that we would live in the same way as we lived before if we've experienced the grace of God. That, is, that doesn't go along with grace. But let us not either fall into the ditch of telling people that they have to do things in order to be saved. Amen. Many people have this misconception well, I have to stop this sin and this sin and this sin before I can be saved. Well, my friend, the reason you need to be saved is because you can't stop your sin. The, the reason you need the grace of God is because you've been unsuccessful up to this point at cleaning your life up. So many people think, well, I'll clean my life up and then I'll come to God and he'll accept me. No, you're still trying to merit God's favor. You come to him as you are, expecting that he is going to change you, but recognizing that you cannot change yourself. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, if you are saved, you are saved by the grace of God. You are saved through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and there is nothing else that needs to be done in order for you to be fully saved. Now, is there fruit that accompanies salvation? Certainly. Is there an expectation of what God will do in your life from that point forward? Definitely. But understand that we should not add anything to salvation because if we do, we're monkeying with the message. We're toying with the truth that God has given, and that is not our area of responsibility. We're really treading on thin ice when we start to change the message. Amen. So these men, they, they heard everything that was said. And in verse 12, the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul as they gave testimony to all that God had done. And some time passed, some testimony was given, and finally in verse 13, which really from here through the end of the chapter is an explanation about how the gospel was affirmed. So by this point, James, who was the senior pastor evidently of the church there, he stood, and everybody gave him audience. Everybody listened when James spoke. And he stood up, and he said, I've been listening to all this, And I have something that I want to say, which is going to be the decision of the church. He acknowledged Peter's testimony. He acknowledged what Peter had seen. And of course, they had heard Peter's testimony before. This was not a new thing to them. But he stood and he acknowledged that what had happened in Peter's ministry was the miraculous work of God among Gentiles. He also reminded them of the scriptures. And he quotes to them uh, from several verses, most of them from the prophets. And he points out in verse 17 that God had given a prediction of this that the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles. He says, going back all the way to the prophets, it's been God's intention that the Gentiles would be saved. It's God's intention that the Gentiles would worship him. God has provided a way and he told us about this. Our fathers told us about this. The prophets told us this time was coming. So he reminded them of the scriptures. I will point out to you that the scriptures make the gospel clear. Human reasoning can confuse the scriptures, but the the scriptures make the gospel clear clear. If we will compare scripture with scripture, if we'll pay attention to what God says, the message of the gospel is very plain. James also reminded them that God had been at work drawing men to himself and that God does not need to explain the way that he works. Verse 18, I love this statement. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. Have you ever met someone and they shared their testimony and you thought this person is a real true believer in Jesus Christ and they they clearly understand the gospel, they've had a change in their life, they worship the Lord Jesus the same as I do, but then as you heard about how the gospel got to them and how they got saved, you thought, I don't know about that. I don't know. That's, that's, I, I never heard of that before. That's a little different. I don't think I've ever heard a testimony like that in church before. All right, so what do we do with that? Well, this is what we do. If a person understands the gospel and they've put their faith in Jesus Christ, we rejoice that they've gotten saved. You will never figure out all the ways that God is able to work and what God can do. He can do things that will defy your ability to comprehend. He knows what he's doing. He's not confused at all. Just rejoice. If somebody got saved, just rejoice and say, praise the Lord. We don't have to seek to mimic those methods or whatever it was that happened to them. We don't have to go out and seek some kind of a thing that's like that. But if they got really saved, well, praise the Lord. Listen, we can rejoice in that. We don't have to understand it. And that's what I think part of the problem here is that some of these men in the church at Jerusalem are having trouble understanding this. Why are these things true for Jews and not true for Gentiles? It's not fair. God doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't have to tell you why he's done things a certain way. Clearly, he gave the law of Moses. Clearly, he put those expectations upon the children of Israel. Clearly, he had a purpose in all of that. Clearly, he did not give the same law to the Gentiles. Clearly. Now, God knows what he's doing. And so, James says, verse 19, Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Do you see what he's saying? Who can deny that these people got saved? They've turned from idolatry, and they're worshiping the true God. They're followers of the same Jesus Christ that we're following, that they believe the same things that we believe. No, they're not going through the same cultural procedures that we went through when we were raised as Jews, but they believe the same things gospel we ought not to trouble them all right so then he gave some practical counsel to them which amounts to and it's repeated a couple of times in the passage these three primary things first of all the recommendation was that they should refuse idolatry so clearly they had repented they were followers of christ And the admonition was, don't have anything to do with idolatry. That's what you came out of. Don't go back to that idolatry. Have nothing to do with that. This makes sense. If somebody has repented, if they've turned to Christ, they should definitely not be involved in idolatry. The thing that they turn from should not be a part of their life. Okay, we can can understand that. The second thing he said, which goes along with the idolatry, was that they should avoid fornication. Sexual sin was rampant in the world at that time, and most of it centered around the idolatry that took place in many of these cities. Much of this sexual sin was a part of the religious worship of these false gods and goddesses, these idols that these people, these Gentiles, had turned away from in order to follow after Christ. And so James said, you should be very careful to stay away from fornication. Of course, this has something to do with the moral law that God has given, and they admonished them in this area. And then he made some... Counsel. He gave them some counsel about some things that would amount to staying away from offenses. And he tells them, for instance, to uh, abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication. Notice from things strangled and from blood. When it's when it's mentioned later, he says that they should uh, keep themselves from these these. Things, this blood—it's—it's it's a thing to do with meat. And you say, "What is that all about?" Well, if you know anything about um, Jewish law, and you've probably heard of kosher foods, so even today, Orthodox Jewish people have a very careful way that they handle meat. They have certain meats that they can and cannot eat. And the meats that they can eat that are considered clean or declared clean by the law of Moses have to be handled in a certain way. A a kosher butcher has to be specially trained in exactly what to do with the animal. And it pertains to everything from the raising of that animal all the the way right to how that, that meat is packaged and placed in a store for sale has to do with how the animal is killed or slaughtered. And it's very different from the the way that meat packing plants would handle it for meat that you and I would eat. And I'm not going to get into all the details of it, but it's very, very specific. And so one of the things is that in, in that law that they should not eat meat from animals that were strangled. It was important that the blood would be let out properly. It's even important in kosher law that the blood vessels would be stripped out and that they would be completely drained of any blood inside of the meat in order to honor the law of Moses. So he says, we want you to be very careful about the meat that you eat. And I don't believe that it was that he was trying to put them under the ceremonial law, which this is part of the ceremonial law. But it was instead, and he clarifies it in verse 21, for Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. He says there are things that you could do by the grace of God that would end up being a hindrance to someone else hearing and understanding the gospel. And if you claim to be a disciple, a believer, and you're doing these things, particularly in regards to this meat issue, which was then a very serious issue, he says, you're going to create an offense because in every city there's people who follow Moses, who read the law, and they're not going to understand why you're doing these things if you're a follower of God, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So we're just giving you the counsel that you ought to avoid that. You ought to stay away from that. Now, it's important in our Christian testimony, and let me point this out, it's not necessary for salvation but you and I ought to be careful about our testimony and how it affects other people who are not yet believers. And and Paul addressed this issue, this particular issue of meat offered to idols in a different place. And he said, if he knew that it would offend his brother, he wouldn't eat meat offered to an idol while the world stands. He He would absolutely not do anything like that, even though... He also says in the same chapter, there's nothing sinful about it. If your, if your conscience doesn't bother you when you eat that meat, there's nothing wrong with it. There's no reason you shouldn't accept that if you're going to offend someone, you ought to defer to your brother's conscience instead of insisting on your rights. All right. So he gave them this counsel. And then we find that he sent some men. So Paul and Barnabas are sent back and two other men, Judas and Silas, are sent with them and they're sent with this message from the church at Jerusalem to come back. And here's the primary purpose, to affirm, to affirm the message of the gospel. That which you have believed is the truth. Those men who came with that other message saying they were from us were lying. They were not sent by us. We recognize that they troubled you and they subverted your souls and they were incorrect in what they said. This is the truth, the gospel that you have believed. So what they were doing was affirming the faith of these believers in Antioch. Judas and Silas were greatly used of God there in Antioch. And as they came, they ended up staying for a while, fellowshipping with the believers, being involved in discipleship, and God greatly blessed the ministry there. And, of course, Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch, and we'll see them. We'll pick up the story with them in a little while. But what I want to point out to you this morning, and there's a lot that we could consider in this passage, and I want to make sure that we stay focused on the main thing. And the main thing is that clear communication concerning the gospel is imperative. It is imperative that we would communicate the gospel clearly. In order to communicate the gospel clearly, it is imperative that we understand the gospel ourselves clearly. Now, don't overcomplicate this. Actually, the overcomplication of it is what lends to unclear communication. The gospel is very simple. Simply put, we are sinners. We have broken God's law. We are guilty before God. We cannot save ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves right with God in and of our own strength. Because of that, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world where he lived a perfect and sinless life. But Because of the rebellion of men, Jesus was put upon a cross. There on that cross, he suffered physically, but he also took upon himself the sins of the whole world. He experienced on the cross, God the Father turning away from him as he endured the wrath of God the Father poured out upon the sins of man. There on that cross... Jesus Christ cried out, It is finished. And the work was done. There was nothing more that needed to be added for men to be saved. Jesus died on that cross. He was put in a tomb. He was buried by two of his faithful disciples. And he stayed there in that tomb for three days and three nights. But on Sunday morning... Jesus Christ got up out of that grave. He showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And in fact, he is alive today. Demonstrating that he has conquered the power of sin and death and hell. He has taken our place. And you say, okay, that's the good news that Jesus came to die in my place to provide a sacrifice so that I could be saved exactly. And what remains is for you to receive what Jesus has done as your own way of salvation. The thing that stands between men and God today is their stubbornness in trying to make themselves right with God through their own efforts. Instead of simply accepting by faith what Jesus has done and coming to him in full assurance that God will save those who come to him, just like he he said that he would. So you're going to have to turn. That's repentance. You're going to have to turn from trying to save yourself. You're going to have to turn from all of your sinful living and all the things that you're enjoying. You can't take Jesus by faith while you're holding on to all of this. So you're going to have to turn your back on that at the same time, realizing I've tried to turn away from that so many times and have never had the power to overcome sin. But when you take Jesus by faith, when you accept him, He'll give you a new heart. He'll give you the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the the ability and the opportunity to overcome the power of the flesh and you can experience real salvation. The gospel is simple. You can be saved today by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Some people who are in this auditorium, no doubt, are overcomplicating the message overcomplicating what it means to be saved. This morning, if you have understood the gospel, why have you not been saved? Why are you clinging to your good works? Why are you holding on to something that is less than salvation when it's been clearly laid out that the way of salvation is Jesus Christ and none else? This morning, I want to present to you with that challenge. If you have understood the gospel and you have never been born again, today is the day of salvation. Come to Jesus today. You say, well, what if he won't take me? He'll take you. Well, what if he doesn't change me? He'll change you. Well, what if it's not an offer for me? It's an offer for you. Come to him without delay. Now, many of you are saying amen because you've experienced that in your life. And if you've experienced it, Are you communicating the gospel? Are you clear in your communication of the gospel? Are you keeping the focus on Jesus and not on man's efforts? Are you clearly communicating the gospel? Because that is imperative for every child of God. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. We have come... To share a message with the world that there is only one way of salvation, we must be crystal clear in our communication of that, and we must help people come to a place of clarity about the fact that Jesus is the only way of salvation. This morning, salvation is not in this church. Salvation is not in that baptistry. Salvation is not in this preacher. Salvation is not in you giving an offering. It's not in you being a better person. Salvation is in Jesus alone. Won't you come to Jesus today?